This is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad. Amen. Amen. If you meant what you just sang, then you've got a lot to smile about. Amen. Amen. The Bible says in Psalm 34, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Amen. I, wait a minute. That was so weak, I may make everybody go outside and come back in. That, is, that means we don't just get to bless God when things are going our way or everything's good. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is what Job said. I will bless the Lord at all times. All times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, if that's true, we can't complain. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. The humble hear of it and are glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Amen. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from most of my fears. Y'all been reading your Bible, haven't you? I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked at him, were radiant, their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him, that's good news, and saved him out of most of his troubles. I'm glad y'all read your Bibles. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him, receiver of divine favor. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There's no want to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. What a word. Amen. <laughs> Say it with me. Some trust in chariots and horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord. Give him praise this morning. He's worthy. Hallelujah. Train filled the temple. The glory of the Lord, we worship you, Lord. You're holy and pure and righteous. There's none beside thee, O God. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We worship you. We lay our lives down. We lay everything down before you today, Lord. Anything we have, we lay it down. Ministries, we lay them all down. Because you are the all in all. We praise you and we worship you. You can use a donkey, Lord. You can use a big fish. You can use a rooster. Lord, you're all powerful and almighty. We worship you, Lord. We worship you. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let's give him praise this morning. He's worthy. Amen.
Hallelujah. Children's church is dismissed. The rest of you may be seated. We've got a lot to do this morning. There's a nursery over there as well. Take your baby over there. The building beside of us here. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to explain a lot of this in detail, the parts of the chapter I'm going to use, and give you some clear understanding here, because this is a uh, hard ask. You ever heard anybody use that phrase? That's a hard ask. It was a hard ask for Noah. It was a hard ask for Abraham. It was a hard ask for Mary. It was a hard ask for Jesus and many others. When the Lord asked them to do something, it's tough. He's going to do the same with us here, but I want to try to clear up some things so that there's no misunderstandings of what Jesus is saying here. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 14. Let's start with verse 15. Now when, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things... He said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. And that's what the Holy Spirit's been saying since Pentecost. He's been wooing people in. To bring them into the kingdom, to the supper time. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. All of them started making excuses. Anybody ever made excuses? That will still be a challenge at times when God speaks to us. So they began to make excuses... With one accord, the first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. Now there's a problem there. I'd like to sell this kind of guy some stuff. Somebody who would buy something and not, then go look at it. He said, I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. Another bad idea. Thought he would have tested them before he bought them. He said, I ask you to have me excused. Now the problem, the reason they're coming, those are both foolish excuses. Because you're saying you bought something that you've not even looked at or tried out. So there's another underlying theme going on with this word excuse. Which means lack of desire. That's one of the problems with that word means lack of desire. They were so disinterested in what they were being offered, they come up with some crazy stuff. Now, how many of you in this building this morning would buy a piece of land without looking at it? Now, I'm not, I know things can be virtual now, and you can see a lot, but, but at least looking at it through a virtual way. None of us in this building would buy a piece of land without looking at it in some way. But it shows you how disinterested they are in the invitation. Right? I'm going to bust everybody's bubble right here. A lot of times when I'm 
marrying people, I'll say, they'll say, we're going to have all, I say, don't worry about it. A lot of them won't come, and they're not going to get offended if you don't invite them. Because people don't always want to go spend a Saturday at a wedding. I said, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. The people that love you will be there. And that's the way it rolls. A lot of people are glad when they don't get invitations to certain things, right? Are you one of those? Sometimes I am. <laughs> because I'm so busy that I'm glad I don't get invited to everything. Because it's a hard spot sometimes, right? I'll send a gift. But something we're really committed to or really interested in, I will probably show up for my daughter's wedding. But I'm just telling you, I'm being real. I've done weddings on top of weddings. I've been doing this stuff. People are not near as upset about not coming as you think they are. Except for these wedding crashers that want to steal food and things like that. So they're disinterested. That's the first problem. Then he says, the next one, he's got a, you know, he's really ramping up here. He said, I've married a wife. And she said, we're not going. No, she, <laughs> she could have said that, but that's not in the scripture. And therefore, I cannot come. Now, that was pretty extreme. And there were a lot of things that people were excused for in Israel, and one of them was marrying a wife. Now, for those of the people who said the New Testament got easier than the Old Testament, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Now, here's the catch, though. The catch is, in the New Testament, thanks to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we have more power and strength to live it than they did in the Old Testament. That's what's changed. The standard didn't drop. Jesus said you can uh, kill somebody with your tongue. You don't have to use a weapon. And there's more killings going on social media than there are in the streets. I love the idea that anybody who uses social media should have to use their real name. Back it up. If you're who you say you are, and you're so upset with everybody else, stick your nose out there and be real. But these are all issues. This last one's extreme because they were excused from war and everything in Israel if they had a first-year wife. But Jesus took it a little further than they even did in the Old Testament because he's going to call all three of these guys' hand on this. He says, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. So the word excuse means to parateomeia uh, is the Greek word. It means a lack of desire is part of the definition. Uh, to ask off, to defect from, and to ask off with pretense or with a cloak. Now, we've all seen this. How many times maybe somebody you work with or maybe you're the one in charge and somebody said they want it off and you saw them at Walmart. They said they were sick. They were sick of coming to work, maybe. 
Is that a lie? You see how watered down our culture's got? Now, I know companies give people personal days and all that. I understand that. But think about it. Excuses, something, the root of this is to do it, to ask off with a pretense or a cloak, something that you're trying to cover up, the fact that you don't want to be there. So that's what excuse means. And then he goes on down, he says, Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly in the streets and lanes and cities and bring in here the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind, people that the culture says shouldn't be invited, the outcast. Now, in those situations back in their day, you were really an outcast. They didn't have the kind of social net that a lot of countries do in the world today. And so if you were poor, if you were maimed, lame, blind, had leprosy, something like that, a lot of times you were an outcast, didn't have any fa- especially if you didn't have family. Stephen, our brother who is in charge of all the ministry in Nigeria, when he was born again and left the African traditionalist religion, there's three main religions in Africa, Christianity, African traditionalists, and, and Islam, when he let, his father kicked him out of the house, he was no longer allowed to live there, and he had to go live with his blind uncle, which God worked all that out to, to help both of them. And so his blind uncle, who was a believer, discipled him to some degree, and he was able to help him. But these people are outcasts. They're, not, they're the ones that's being brought in. And he says, Sir, Master, it's done as you commanded. There's still there's room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. The word compel is a a word that means uh, to constrain, to use compulsion, and to stop just short of making somebody do something. Now let me give you an illustration of how this would work. Let's say the building's on fire, and, uh, and Rob is reluctant to leave or go down the stairwell. Then I grab, let me, don't stick me that ink pen. Let me grab Rob. I'm trying to get him. I'm, just, I'm not talking anymore. I'm trying to pull him. Now, R- Rob can release again and do his own thing, and I'm not going to carry him down the stairs, but I'm trying to get him out. Now, you think about that for a moment. Think about how real hell is to those of us who are believers. And think about reaching your neighbor and your neighbor is anybody you have the proximity to reach is what the Greek word means in other words you have the ability to touch that person's life not necessarily even physically but impact their life and there's the good part of social media I still write letters because I'm old-fashioned but there's the good part you can touch people you know what social media did made you more responsible with all the bad that it causes it made us more responsible if you're a user of that. And it's not your opinion that the world needs to hear about most of the time. It's Jesus they need to hear about. And so when you're compelling somebody, it's like getting them out of a building and you're grabbing them, trying to pull them, but you can't force them. I mean, they can stay. And if hell is as real, and we know that Jesus talked about hell twice as much as he did heaven, so it was real to him. He rose from the dead. We'll take his word over anybody else's. That's the reality of it. 
I heard this years ago, somebody said, if I believe, he was talking to a Christian, said, if I believe what, the way you Christians do, that heaven and hell was at stake, said, I'd be going up and down the roads all the time trying to compel people. And then that word compel means to stop just short of making them. So that's a pretty aggressive position when you're trying to reach somebody. I've made people angry. Can't, you know, all those emotions that, that we deal with when you're talking to people. I've had people walk away. But we're trying to reach the lost because we're trying to, with our eyes open, we see what's at stake and they do not. It's like flagging somebody down because the bridge is out ahead. How aggressive would you be? If you knew the bridge was out and people were coming down the road, how aggressive would you? You would be pretty aggressive. The only thing you wouldn't do is get out in front of the car and get run over. That's how we should be with the lost. Take your moments and be real. It says, go out in highways, hedges, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. They had excuses. They were disinterested. Other things were more important to them. Now, there are three things that stand out in those, those three excuses. And they're the same thing that we deal with today. Those three things are earthly, they're all earthly, commerce, possessions, and natural affection. That's what, that's what kind of distracts all of us. There's competition for God being first in our lives every step of the way. How many of you realize that? And fear has new seasons. The devil tries to put fear. Now, fear or worry is not, in, is not a part of God's plan for your life. I'm going to say it as clear as I can. The Bible says worry or fretting only causes harm. That's all it does. It doesn't do anything good. So worry and fear or fretting, if you want to call it that, as the Old Testament does, is not a part of God's plan for your life. But if you'll notice, in every season of life, the devil will have something for you and I to fear about. Yeah. And, it, and it, it may be a new season. It may be a different angle. But there's always something for you to fear, fear about. And fear stems, now I'm going to say this as, as clear as I can, fear usually stems by us thinking it's up to us to handle it. That's where it comes from. It's my job to see this through. Somebody asked me years ago, I don't remember if somebody young had passed away. I was young but had children they were very young and somebody asked me he said what if God took you out now what about your family I said I would hold God responsible for them. I don't mean that in an arrogant way but I would turn them over to him if my life was cut short for whatever reason then I would have this expectation that God would step in and do his role in my family's life I have great confidence and expectation in that. I'm not arrogant about it, but I know in whom I believed, and I have a personal relationship with him. And I don't think God would just drop my family off somewhere and leave them in the dirt. I don't believe that. That's not the God I serve. And I don't know how he would do that. That wouldn't be my business. That would be his. 
But I want to tell you something. My three children and grandchildren now and my wife, God loves every one of them more than I do. And he gave me every one of them, starting with my wife. I found her up in a holler. And she found me in the other holler. We both grew up in a holler. Actually, we met at the coal mines. Can you believe that? Now, that's where the BTUs were burning. Now, I've told that story enough, right? I thought she's the prettiest coal miner I'd ever seen. Except she didn't have to work underground. She got to stay in the office. We, everything we have has come from God's hand. And let me say that to you. That's from the time you're an infant, and you don't know nothing. You don't even know where you're at. You may have been born in Kentucky, but you don't know that. And you're stuck in a bed that you can't even climb out of. You can't even raise your head up. You can't even say, I'd like to have some more milk, please. And who's taking care of it? It's that way in every facet of life. If we could tell fear to take a hike, our lives would grow immensely. Amen. So every time, right, you get older, there's other things the devil tries to slap fear on. The God you served when you were 25 is the same God you'll serve when you're 65. He said he'd never leave you nor forsake you. He'd be with you all the way to the end. That's the God we serve. So the next thing he says, and it's going to get tougher, and a great multitude went out with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate here is not as we use it in the English. It means to love less, to have less affection for. doesn't mean you have to hate people. Missio is the Greek word, and it means to love less, but there's more to this word. It also means to... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It means to love more. In other words, you've got to love God more and others less. That's exactly the BTU lesson I give from time to time. You may think, I can love this person more if I make them everything to me. That's not how it works good. When you love God first, you get a greater capacity to love that person. So if I, love, if I just totally loved my wife and made her the center of my life instead of God, I could only love her to a certain level. But if I make God the center of my life, I can love my wife more. So she gets a better benefit by me loving God first. Now, the world's got that all screwed up. In fact, they don't even know what love is, right? But love, God gives us the opportunity to have a greater capacity to love. We can love with more BTUs if we love God first. So three times in this next passage I just started, he's going to say, you cannot be my disciple. Three times. The first one we just read. He said, you can't love anybody more than me would be the right way to say that. Uh, children, brothers, mother, sisters. And then he says, and your own life, wife, 
You cannot love your own life more than my disciple. Now, those things that we just talked about, commerce, relationships, and what was the other one I mentioned? Commerce, and possessions, those are the things that challenge us. I, I, I've seen this over the years, and this is just an illustration I saw clearly. But uh, it was in, a, in the church I pastored. One family, two families done, it, done well. They really done well. And, and so financially. And both of them bought houseboats. Nothing wrong with buying houseboats. If you got one, I'd like to visit you on that. <laughs> I'm not against houseboats. But one of them we never saw again. And the other one kept it in perspective. The blessing became more important than the blesser to and the other one kept the blessing in perspective and took it as a blessing, and that was it. So what, those are the same problems, relationships. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people walk in 30 years because the relationship out there meant more, was more important to them than the relationship they would have with Jesus Christ. Possessions, commerce. I heard a story about a guy who the Lord was dealing with years ago. He, he came to church one night. He was in stuff that he shouldn't have been in. Uh, and he was a big businessman. And the preacher went back to him discreetly and said, Man, I know the Lord's dealing with you. It's your day today to come. And he said, Yeah, preacher. He said, he said I would come. He said, But tonight, tomorrow morning I've got a deal going down and it's not totally legal. And he said, If I go give my heart to the Lord tonight, I won't be able to pull the deal off tomorrow. So he knew the standard, didn't he? And I'm going to say this. I think most people understand the standard. They know the difference between right and wrong. Now, a lot of folks get their conscience seared, like James talks about, and they get to where they become reprobates, where they no longer have that sense of right and wrong. I understand there's people like that. For the most part, people understand what's right and what's wrong. They have some level of conscience until it's been seared. And this guy wouldn't come to the altar because the deal he was getting ready to do was going to be illegal. I told you about Jesse, who was like the largest distributor in our area, who got saved, and he, he said when he got saved, he had, his pockets were full of drugs. He was the largest mover in our region. And he got saved, and he said he walked outside and emptied all his pockets of his drugs and told his wife, said, I'm unemployed. And the way we knew he was really born again, of course, he's proved it for the last 20-some years, was the fact that he never went, people owed him lots of money. And he never went and got any of it back. He walked away. You got to die in your life. And your, everybody's life's different. But there are things that have holds on people's lives that are just as big of a hold as any other thing, addiction or whatever. There are some people who love money. They love it. It's bad. It's not the houseboat that's bad. It's the love of those things that get in front of your love for God. That's where the problem, and that's what he's trying to get across here. He says, and then he says, you can't love anybody more than me, including your own life. And whosoever does not bear his cross, and the cross is an emblem of death, right? So basically he's saying, you need to empty yourself out. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And come after me uh, cannot be my disciple. That's the second time he said it. Bear your cross. Follow him, right? I mean, you're going you're gonna to do his deal. 
Uh, it says, For which of you intended to build a tower does not sit down first and, and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who are begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great while off, sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace, so likewise whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now the word forsake is an interesting word, and I wanted to talk to you about the word forsake. Somebody, those who get the most out of their relationship with God are those who, reserve, who withhold nothing from Him. Now you talk about, like we see with Abraham. Abraham wouldn't even withhold his only son. Those are the folks who get the most out of God. They are receivers of everything. There's, there's nothing they have that God cannot touch. Now, don't you think about that, because that's, that may be easy to say, but it may not be so easy to live. A disciple. The Greek word means a trained one who follows the teachings of adherence, trained by, uh, tra to, be, to be trained is the most powerful meaning. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if you don't follow me, I'm not going to train you in the ways of God. Now what happens is people don't follow Him. They get in church and they don't get in the Word. They don't surrender to the Word of God and they start following in their own mind with their own intellect, with their own vision, and their own desires. That's why we got so many kooks in the church now. In the church world. Somebody wrote a book, How to Spend Quality Time with God in 10 Minutes or Less. Are you kidding me? Each book come with a microwave. I'm just kidding. Think about that. That's, that is, that's outrageous. The, na the, na the challenges that we face are the same they've always faced. There's nothing new under the sun. They may come in different packages, different avenues, but Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. It's always been the challenge of possessions, relationships, and commerce, right? You can get consumed in those things. That's been the way it is from the beginning. Those things, they may come in different packages. They may look shinier maybe than they did 100 years ago, but it's still the same mindset. This word forsake here is an interesting word. It means to take leave of. In verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever does not forsake, it means to take leave of. Or, and it also means to arrange or set in order. Have a appointed place to have settled and decided. In other words, he's not telling you that you have to walk away from everything. Some people have. I've had to do that three times in my life. Abraham had to do that. But what he's telling you is, with this, this, this is probably a poor word here. When I went and dig, dug around on this word, forsake's probably not the best word in the English to use there. But it means to arrange. So God here, right? And everything after that. He's not saying you have to quit everything. Some people he does have to 
do that. He asked the disciples to do that. He asked people who maybe he calls in the ministry to do that, to walk away from everything. But this word in particular means to have things put in order, to set them in order, to appoint them, to have a place. So God may not require of you everything, but he is going to require this of all of us. He has to be first. He has to be first. You can't have your wife in front of him. You can't have your children in front of him. And that's really the bigger problem I've seen in the last 20 years. People who put their children in front of God. Now, we all love our children, but they're gifts from God. They should never go in front of him. And you're never going to love your children more than God loves them. He's the one dispatched them and gave them to you. So all of these things, you cannot love anything more than him and be his disciple. You cannot have your priorities arranged. So, so here's the test. When God asks of something and you can't receive it, that's the test. One time I had my hands on something that I felt like I was going to do good with. And the Lord visited me three times about that. It, I, it wasn't nothing uh, sinful, but it became sinful when he said, I don't want you doing that. You get me? It wasn't a heaven or hell issue, as I would call it, that you could look at that and say, well, that's certainly a hellish thing. It could, and a lot of people... It's very beneficial for. But I figured I would do it. And the Lord challenged me three times. You know what he said last time he visited me? He said, Matthew, I've been taking care of this in your life the whole time. He said, would you like to trade places? I said, no. <laughs> Someday I'll give you more detail about that because it'll help you, but this morning it'll take the rest of the turf. Think about that for a minute. That's what a lot of us get caught up in, right? Doing for ourselves. We've got, and I know we live in America. We're self-made people. I, I understand hard work. I worked in gardens before I was old enough to work a real job, eight hours a day sometimes. I understand all that. But we couldn't have anything if it weren't for the Lord. And a lot of stuff we find ourselves doing, He would take care of if we would keep Him first. And we see that. What about Noah? What about a hard ask? Hey, build me a boat. Drop everything you're doing. Stop your 401k. Quit your job. Get out in that field and build me a boat. We act like we're going to live here forever. Did anybody look in the mirror and see how much you've aged since the last time you looked? I had a great uncle pass away a couple months ago and he said... I wondered where all the, I said, I was wondering where all the middle-aged people went. He said, and then I went and shaved, and I realized where they went. 
Life is but a vapor, right? You're, you're, you're not supposed to make your home here. I'm not either. We pitch our tents and build our altars. We place the emphasis on our spiritual life. If you're a blessed person, so be it. I count myself as a blessed person. But God has given you provision for so you can be a, an example of Him and His goodness and to bless and help others and to show His kingdom the favor that He's called us to do. The, the Bible says the, God gives us power to get wealth to establish His kingdom, not to establish our own kingdoms. That's what the Bible says. The, God, the Bible says God gives us power to get wealth to establish His kingdom. Your house should be a sanctuary when people come that they feel the presence of God, that you don't talk about everything but God. That's how your house should be. Your house should be a place of refuge. When people come by, weary travelers in their spiritual journey, they can be refreshed. That's, God said, I give you power. He told his people, I give you power to get wealth to establish my kingdom. Because you're just renting down there. I've got a home prepared for you up here on the other side. You're just passing through. That's all any of us are doing. We're just passing through. And I, I have those. And if you're over 30, 35-ish, you're going to wake up some mornings and you're going to think, am I really this old? It don't hit till probably in your 30s sometimes. But so I start, and, that, and it still happens from maybe once or twice a year, I wake up and think, man, I am too close to Social Security. How did this happen? And now I'm starting to see where all the middle-aged people went. And then he says, he says, so likewise, you don't get your priorities arranged right. He's not telling you have to walk away from your family. Now, some people he did, and, and those are extreme calls. But God, God wants you to have your stuff in order with him in top, on top. And then uh, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there are finishers in the Bible. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Jesus is the greatest finisher that ever lived. He finished what he started, camped the cost. He, he, and there's a double meaning most theologians believe, or the deeper theologians that I read, that Jesus was saying, I've counted the cost, that I've done all this for you, so the word do the same is not really what was in the text. It's therefore. In other words, there's a message that Jesus is trying to hand off to there, what I just read, that I've counted the cost, and that's why this discipleship program is set up the way it is for you to be one of mine. So if you don't forsake, if you don't get your priorities right and follow him, he's not going to train you. And if you don't get trained, you're going to be a mess. And if you don't, and, and I'm telling you, Jesus is the greatest the, the discipler of anybody. The Bible says the Holy Spirit's the greatest teacher we have. I got angry about a year into ministry because my senior pastor had kind of hadn't been what I thought he should be. And I went to complain about him and was crying. And you know what the Holy Spirit said to me? He said, I've done this for a reason. He said, I've let you be out here so you'll learn to lean on me and not men. And man, that has worked in my life. It's been a blessing in my life. You're not called to be a disciple of a man. You're called to be a disciple of the Lord. And you know why? Because I'd be too easy on you. If I was making disciples for Matthew, I'd be way too easy on you. If you didn't show up for class on time, I'd blow it 
off. I wouldn't say, hey, you can't come in here loving somebody more than me. I wouldn't say that. Jesus did. He said, you're not going to follow me and get trained right if you love somebody more than you love me. I wouldn't be a good disciple like him. I wouldn't be in your face with it and say, here's what's best for you whether you know it or not. And it was a blessing to me because God trained me. He took time to train me and lead me and direct me. And it caused me now to lean on Him and not men and not systems. And that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for all of us that we lean on things, lean on systems, and lean on, even in, even in a religious sense, we can do that. Now, Paul was a finisher as well. Let's look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 1. He says, I charge you, therefore... Let me say this. Anybody know who James Ryle is? James Ryle was one of the promise keeper speakers when, when it was big time all over the United States. He was the, uh, the chaplain for the Colorado football team when they won the national championship. He wrote some books. Good guy. Good preacher. And I, I developed a relationship with him, and I said, uh, um, <clears throat> I said, I'd like for you to disciple me. And he said, well... If you want it, you'll have to come and get it. He said, I'm not going to be calling you. You're going to have to reach out to me. If you really want. And that's how Jesus was. That's how Moses was. If you really want to serve the Lord, we're putting the tabernacle outside the camp out here. You go and find it. Who is it that wants it? Who is it that desires it? Who is it that seeks it? Those three guys, the, the three guys that were confronted, they'd had a lack of desire. In fact, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, he told another group, he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They said, oh, goodness, that's a little too heavy for us. We're out of here. And Jesus didn't even try and stop them. I would have. I'd have gotten the flesh. I said, hey, wait, hey, hold on here, boys. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. He didn't even explain himself. You know what he did? He's making disciples. And the first thing that qualifies you for a disciple is desire. Amen. How bad do you want it? They used to tell us in the ball, ball teams from grade school all the way through college, how bad do you want it? How bad do you, do you want it more than the guy across the line from you? Do you want it more than the guy on the other bench? How bad do you want it? And so he didn't even say, hey, wait a minute, guys, let me explain all that. It's a spiritual thing. Let me give you some insight into that. He let them go. Then he turned to the ones that stayed and said, I'm glad you guys hung in there. Let's go. Nope. That ain't what he said. He said, you guys going to leave too? Who wants it? Who desires it? The person that's willing to take their cross up and die to themselves. That's the one that wants it. That's why Jesus said there's few that find it. Many are going to destruction, but few. Paul found it, and he finished. I like the finishers, people who finish what they started. In verse uh, 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, those who are alive and those who passed on his appearing in the kingdom. Preach the word, he's telling Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's it. We've got a church culture in our world today that thank God's okay with whatever. Just as long as they show up. God wants your heart. He wants you to follow Him. He wants to disciple you, to train you. And then He says, When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. 
This is what's going on in our world in a lot of cases. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. Can you draw a paycheck from work if you don't show up? The only place you can do that is Washington, D.C. But you can't do it in one of these factories. You couldn't do it in the coal mine. You can't do it at school teaching. If you don't show up for work, you don't. Why do we think we're going to receive the benefits of the Lord when we don't surrender ourselves to Him, when we don't show up for work? And then he says, they'll turn their ears away from the truth to be turned unto fables. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at. I told you about this, but this has been years ago. And I'm finding out some of these guys in the late 1800s and the early 1900s were seeing all this stuff that we're exploding in right now. The Holy Spirit was already showing it to them. But I had, a, uh, in one of the classes I took years ago in seminary, I had to visit seven churches. And out of those seven churches, one of them used the Scripture in their service. One of them. And that's been years ago now. One of them. Two of them read out of newspaper articles and talked about that. And the other four were so bad, I can't even remember what they did. It said, Be turned unto fables, but you will be watchful in all things, endure afflictions... And do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. Finish. Count the cost. Understand what God's asking of you. Follow Him. Do the deal, right? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is hand. If you all have heard me do funerals, I use this verse a lot. The word departure is analusis. It's the Greek word. It's a shipping term. It, it means a ship not tying off its moorings and, st and stopping. It means one letting loose and leaving the harbor. So basically what Paul's saying, I'm getting ready to die. That's when I'm really going to sell. I'm constrained down here. But when I die, I'm really going to sell. He used the exact opposite of what we thought he would use there. He's getting ready to die. He knows his time's coming. And so he used a shipping term that don't mean the ship's coming into harbor and tying off and quit sailing. He used the exact opposite. He used the term there, analusa, that means to loose the ship. And it's just now leaving the harbor and taking off sailing. Because he said, he's the one that told us, I had not seen. Ear had not heard, neither had entered the heart of man the things that God has in store for those who love him. Hallelujah. Ooh, I felt that. If I had more hair, I'd have had a mohawk when I was saying that. He gives us things we've not even seen. You think this life's good? You ain't seen nothing yet. To borrow a phrase from an old rock group, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think this is good living, if you think this is good food, if you think black top's nice to drive on, you ain't seen nothing yet. We have a God that is in love with his bride. And think about how you, you I'm telling you, you did what I did, right? You pro I did this. I couldn't afford the ring I wanted and I, I, when I was getting ready to get married, so I put it on layaway. And I paid on that baby till I got it, and it was still not very big, but it's big for me. I've upgraded my wife because she needed it. She's had to live in the ministry for 30 years. But the first one I bought her, it was big time money for me. But I, she, there's nothing too much for my... Did you think Jesus feels that way? He, I mean, he's, he, he's prepared. He, he, he worked on this earth for six days to make it. And he's been up there working for nearly 2,000 years. What kind of home you think? What kind of room are you going to have? What do you think Jesus is doing for his bride? Those who hang in there. Those who don't make excuses. Say, I'm married to you no matter what comes. The same thing we said on our wedding day, we should be saying to Jesus. For better, for richer, for poor, for worse, sickness, illness, death, it doesn't matter. I'm hanging in there with you. 
That's how we should be toward Him. You know, I read that psalm this morning that said he will have all good things, right, in Psalm 34. Well, Psalm 84 ends the same way. He said he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk upright before him. The word upright doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean somebody without flaws. It means somebody that stays coupled, stays coupled no matter what. You stay in your covenant. You stay coupled with the Lord. Don't you keep following him, and he will not withhold any good thing. And, he's, and I love it. I love some of the things that I enjoy in this life. I enjoy them. But I tell you, we've not seen or heard what's coming. Can you say amen? amen. Then he says, I've kept the faith. He said, I've fought a good fight. His departure is hand. He said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in the day of not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. You love him? What about Mary? 16 years old, they think, right around that age. Angel shows up and said, hey, Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and you're going to be impregnated with the Son of God. What do you think was going through her mind? Will I get stoned? Who's going to believe me? It's a hard ask, wasn't it? But she said, be it unto me. Whatever you want to do with me. That's where we got to get. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, are you going to relinquish the people that withhold nothing from God are the ones who get the most out of the relationship with God? You know, and, and, I, and I've journeyed a long time with the Lord. And there have probably been times in my life where I thought, Lord, you can have it all. But then something comes up, right? And he identifies something in us. So we don't always see what he sees. And you think, oh, Lord. I guess I wouldn't totally surrender. It's a journey. As I talked about Wednesday night, light, or maybe it's Thursday day, I can't remember, but light has the ability to do a lot of wonderful things. It can get so devastating that it can also kill. We have Star Wars now. But light is a powerful thing. God don't give us too much light all at once or we couldn't take it. It destroys us. So he takes us on a journey to reveal things to us as we go, and you may be high on yourself. Then the Lord knocks and says, Hey, uh, I want to show you something over here in the corner of your life. And you say, Oh. So it's a journey. Discipleship's a journey, it's not a destination. Our destination's heaven. Discipleship's a journey. You're on a journey. And that's why we can't judge one another. Because God has a relationship with everybody that's born again, He loves us all. And people have to respond. Your greatest place to get discipled is by the Holy Spirit. Don't wait for somebody to give you a word. Get in here and get your own word and live by it. He's still the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. You guys can come to the instruments. Christianity requires self-sacrifice. Let's, let's go to... Uh, Luke chapter 16 and 13. Can you throw that up there real quick? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be, love, he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That is a challenge for all of us, right? The Bible tells us, let's stand to our feet. To not worry about tomorrow.
And the first thing I would say about that is because you and I do not own tomorrow. I know we all like to think we're going to wake up in the morning, but that's just not true. We had a guy who's been close to a few of us around here, passed away at 59 suddenly two days ago, gone. Now, he was a believer. He was ready to go. But none of us own tomorrow, so that's the thing we should remember. We don't own tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, he said. And that includes everything, folks. That includes all the normal day-to-day things. It includes your health, your finances, all that. You don't own tomorrow. Let God take care of tomorrow. Be wise today. Live unto God today because it could be your last, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to be your disciples. And sometimes the things we read are hard for us to let sink down into our ears, as you said. Especially because we're all deal, we all deal with eros, God. Every one of us. Things that we, are, we get self-centered about. We start getting consumed in taking care of ourselves. And we forget that the reason you gave us power for wealth is to establish your kingdom. That's the first priority. So everything we have, just like Peter's boat, you should have access to. You asked for their boat to drift out and to teach and preach. And they let you have it. That's the way all of us should be, Lord. All of us. Nothing we have should we keep from you. Abraham proved it. Noah proved it. Mary proved it. They withheld nothing from you, Lord. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son. No wonder you blessed him so much because he didn't withhold anything from you. When we don't have our priorities right, when we don't follow you and get trained by you, we start following in our own intellect with our own desires and our own preconceived notions. And that will lead to trouble. Help us to lay everything down. Help us to lay every book down. And help us to make your word the centerpiece of our lives. If you're here this morning and you're not right with God, as we get ready to worship for a moment here, just slip out of your seat. You're not out of place to walk down this aisle and pray here in this altar area. If you need to get something right with God, if you need to return to God, maybe you're here and you've never been born again. You've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never even started the journey as a disciple. Today's your day. If you're here and you've been walking with Him, but you've done what the prodigal's done, you've walked away, come home this morning as we worship Him.